Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted August 11, 2017, we consider President Trump's megaton military rhetoric, but limited actions and even more limited success, most notably right now in the escalating confrontation with North Korea. A major article in the new WPJ summer issue is Marching as to War, Trump's New Militarism. We'll also spotlight other top features in the new summer issue, cover line Justice Denied. But first, some timely insights from global affairs analyst and author Michael Moran, head of Transformative.io, risk and geostrategy consultants. Thanks, David. Not long ago, it appeared that Venezuela would emerge as a serious rival to American influence in Latin America. With the world's largest proven reserves of oil, it was enjoying the same windfall from $100 a barrel prices that reflated the ambitions of Vladimir Putin's Russia. Just as the Soviet Union had provided free oil and other subsidies to its allies in Eastern Europe and Cuba during the Cold War, Venezuela's populist Generalissimo Hugo Chavez, at the end of the last decade, was winning friends in Nicaragua, Cuba, and the rest of the Caribbean with similar policies. Today, the largesse is gone, and so is Chavez. His hand-picked replacement is finishing Chavez's work of making Venezuela safe from democracy. Nicolas Maduro, Chavez's successor, inherited bad policies and then doubled down, saddling his country with crazy currency controls, turning a blind eye to corruption among his allies in the army, and making party loyalty a litmus test for everything from health care to education to food distribution. Whatever promise Chavez's Bolivarian revolution once held for the poor Venezuelans has been destroyed by economic and political incompetence. Per capita income has fallen from about $295 a month to just $36 a month, according to Harvard University. Some revolution. The U.S. response has been tepid, though. The U.S. Treasury recently placed sanctions on 10 Maduro cronies, freezing assets and barring them from the playgrounds of Miami. Yet Venezuela ranked second in 2016 to Saudi Arabia as the chief source of U.S. oil imports. This is partly because Venezuela is trapped by geology. Its high-viscosity oil requires the kind of refineries that mostly exist in the U.S. Gulf Coast. The country has been trying to build refineries so that it can export more to, say, China, but the incompetence of Maduro's regime has made progress slow. So why not stop buying Maduro's oil for a year? That would hurt, wouldn't it? The oil lobby is the answer. Those U.S. refineries, after all, need Venezuelan oil to be profitable. That's the crude reality. For World Policy On Air, this is Michael Moran. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. The generals under Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton have not been successful. Under the leadership of Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, the generals have been reduced to rubble. That was candidate Donald Trump almost a year ago. Today, some of those same generals have become President Trump's go-to guys for Secretary of Defense, National Security Advisor, both first and second choice, and Secretary of Homeland Security, later repurposed as Chief of Staff to discipline a White House in chaos. And yet, the decisive action and military success that Trump promised remain elusive, even as he hollows out U.S. diplomacy and foreign aid. Worse still, his continuing bombast this week threatening North Korea with fire and fury like the world has never seen makes many fear an actual, if accidental, nuclear nightmare. 
To consider the implications of Trump's rhetoric, various shows of force, and limited success to date, we turn to Dr. Karen J. Greenberg, director of the Center on National Security at Fordham University Law School. Her article in the new WPJ winter issue is headlined, Marching as to War, Trump's New Militarism, and we discussed it all the other day for this podcast. Dr. Greenberg, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with this week's biggest national security challenge, North Korea. We've seen escalating Washington-led UN economic sanctions, now backed by Beijing and Moscow, deployment of U.S. submarine and surface ships and anti-missile missiles to South Korea, but the North continues to develop launchable nuclear warheads and test ICBMs, now arguably able to reach the U.S. mainland, though with what accuracy and actual payloads remains unclear. China continues to rely more on rhetoric than its dominant economic power over Pyongyang and urges negotiations to which U.S. Secretary of State Tillerson agreed only after cessations of the North's missile tests. Uh, Pyongyang said no way. Trump ad-libbed fire and fury, which some top U.S. officials quickly dialed back at least a bit. And Pyongyang announced consideration of firing intermediate-range missiles into the waters off Guam, a U.S. territory, and major military outposts. Do you see a successful or even rational strategy here, military or diplomatic? It's hard to it's hard to come up with a, a rational strategy here. What you see is rather reactivity, and that's what we've seen from the beginning of the Trump administration. Is something happens, they react. Something else happens, they react. And the question is, can they, in this time of reactivity, can the national security advisors get their heads together to think about a longer term strategy? And we haven't really seen any evidence of that uh, in the North Korea situation. And and I might add, in other situations around the world. Well, I think we'll probably get to them. One past guest on this podcast suggested that anti-missile missiles from U.S. submarines or surface ships could knock out North Korean ICBMs in their slow-rising launch phase. Should that be a sufficient safeguard for Americans, even if it's followed by massive retaliation against South Korea, including so many U.S. soldiers and civilians there? You know, I think that's a really hard question to ask any of us. I mean, we don't know. Um, and and we can rely on experts and we can pretend to know, but we don't know. What we do know is that we are we've been catapulted into a conversation where that could be the question. And, and you know, to what extent is, you know, nuclear destruction possible or on the horizon? And it's simply unacceptable. And so, you know, we don't, it'd be nice to, to have a, uh, a sweet answer to that question. Oh, yeah, that's, that's what we need. Um, and that'll take care of it. We have, we have no idea. We're in uncharted territory. I guess the question is, even if you posited that, that those missiles could be stopped, would we be risking our ally South Korea, maybe Japan, uh, from a more con to more conventional attacks by North Korea? Yeah, that could happen, but I think that the... the the, the escalation, who knows how this escalation will play out, you know, and who knows if, if one round is, is going to be enough. So I think, again, I think it's very hard to get into that kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, tabletop exercise in our, in our heads. I think we actually don't know what the reactions are going to be. How do you see Washington's response to Beijing's own continued demonstrations of military strength in and around the South China Sea, deploying U.S. warships and warplanes uh, to what we see as international waters and airspace? 
Yeah, I think the South China Sea uh, issue is actually a very important one. And if it weren't being overshadowed by so much else going on in the world right now, we would be paying perhaps closer attention as a population to it. I think that what the United States is trying to do is to make it clear that uh, we are not we're not going to turn our eyes away from this, that we're going to keep poking at them. What is this, the, the third time in, in recent months um, that we've made our presence known? Um, and I, I think it's, but I think it's a holding pattern. I think on the other side of what's going on with China, which is the, the threat of sanctions um, and what that will mean is a, is a whole other level of, of contentiousness and conflict. And I think, um, and we can talk about that perhaps later because I think it, it feeds into other parts of the world as well. Let's turn next to Syria, where candidate Trump said he knew better than U.S. generals how to defeat ISIS. How do you score U.S. strategy as ISIS does lose territory but continues to initiate or inspire terrorism around the globe? Yeah, I think that the ISIS issue is actually getting very complicated in terms of understanding what does it mean to retake the territory that ISIS has has claimed as the caliphate, to retake that that territory, to get rid of the caliphate uh, or reduce it to minimal uh, places, and then what does it mean for ISIS and can they recruit? And I think that that actually is a question that needs to be expanded almost exponentially to understand much more about who's doing the recruitment because there are two things going on. One is the the ideas uh, of, of jihadism, the bin Ladenism that was embedded into ISIS and what its aims were, where you can self-radicalize yourself. You don't need somebody to recruit you. And that has to do with certain ideas about the caliphate, etc. But the other is the use of, um, of uh, jihadist notions and the use of, of terrorist actors to satisfy other people's, other nation states' aims. It's proxy violence in proxy war. And so I think that the term ISIS is getting very diffuse in terms of what it means. To say ISIS recruitment really doesn't mean right now what it meant uh, even a year ago. And so I think this is a whole new chapter that terrorists Terrorism experts and counterterrorism experts are going to have to uh, start looking at. I, I think there is a way in which we'd all like to say, yeah, good, uh, don't worry about uh, ISIS anymore. What's happening is that at the same time that, of course, there's still a worry about ISIS, there's now a renewed worry about al-Qaeda and the resurgence of al-Qaeda. And uh, so one of the questions is what will happen in terms of future connectivity between ISIS and al-Qaeda? Uh, and it's one of the um, I don't know if it was unforeseen by everybody, but unforeseen and not sufficiently dealt with uh, potential fallouts of the Syrian conflict. A Trump-ordered missile strike failed to destroy Syrian President Assad's remaining chemical weapon stockpiles or the airfield from which they were flown or, in fact, weaken Assad's regime and its continuing support from Moscow and Tehran. Talk about that and the new Trump-Putin deal for a ceasefire in anti-Assad southwestern Syria. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, one, one thing I, I, that's so interesting about all of these things that you're mentioning are, are and this will sound like a very simple thing to say, but it, but it needs to be pointed out, all of these things are connected to one another. It doesn't matter which part of the world you're talking about. This is the kind of di the diplomacy that's required that needs to recognize how every single action that's taken or policy turn that's made is, may, in fact, aff affect another country another alliance, another issue. And, of course, Syria is, is one place where this is, um, is, is very evident. And, you know, I think when we finally get the story of what's happened in Syria and what the Putin-Trump um, alliance, 
uh, for lack of a better term, has been about, um, and, and who accepts it and who doesn't, um, we're going to know a much fuller story than we know right now. But one thing we do know for sure is that of all of the countries that seem to have reacted the most strongly to it was, of course, Israel, which uh, Netanyahu, who, who you know, was not taking this uh, agreement, um, doesn't want anything to do with this agreement because it did not include a requirement that I- Iran uh, reduce its presence um, or end its presence and so in, in Syria. And so it's, it's complicated. There's many other players at stake. Um, and in terms of, you know, what motivated um, Trump and Putin to come, up to, to, to come up with their ceasefire and other issues that they've um, tried to agree upon, I think we're in the middle of that story. Uh, and, and once we see the full story, we'll be able to understand the motives here much better. Well, I guess this may be part of it. My next question, uh, ending direct CIA support for some moderate anti-Assad fighters. Was it a favor to Putin, partially offsetting increased sanctions perhaps, or a concession to reality to prevent U.S. arms from falling to more powerful, more radical forces? I have a feeling, it, although you could build the narrative that it was the former, a concession to, to Putin, it, it, if, you, if you look at it over time, I think it was much more a concession to reality. I think that during the latter part of the Obama years, the tremendous cost, and I mean financial costs as well as you know, other uh, human resource costs um, of, of this program had begun to seem like they weren't giving the kind of returns they wanted um, you know, to train these uh, anti-Assad forces. And so I think even even under a different president, I think this might have been what was the logical conclusion of, of what policymakers uh, were th- and military strategists were thinking uh, at, the term of, at the end of the Obama administration. So I have a feeling, although I know there's much debate about this, that, that you could probably tell the narrative either way, but this is a logical consequence of what they were saying at, at the end of the last presidency. What's your view of those increased Washington-led sanctions on Moscow, its retaliation against U.S. diplomatic personnel while continuing to occupy Crimea, support pro-Russian forces in Ukraine, and uh, indeed undermine democratic politics in Europe and, and the United States? Yeah. Well, this gets back to your original question. You know, is there a consistency here? Is there a policy we can read? Is there, you know, how many conflicting agendas can can one uh, narrative hold um, and and the attitude toward and the and the um, policies towards Russia seem very much uh, conflicted in terms of what their actual strategy is and their actual outcome is I think in terms of the the sanctions uh, regime it's it's much more consequential in terms of Iran than it is in terms of Russia I think a lot in terms of Russia is now very symbolic I think Putin and and, and Trump um, are both on the same page that they have to make certain gestures that appear symbolic um, and others that they're working on um, individually uh, behind the scenes with their respective countries. So, um, so I, I'm, I'm not surprised that we're seeing conflictual things, and I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the future. And what impact or react to new sanctions do you expect from Tehran, given Trump being persuaded by his generals to certify that Iran was meeting its obligations under the deal to halt its uh, nuclear development? 
Yeah, but Iran seems very, you know, the reports are that Iran is upset by the the, the, the sanctions regime that affected um, Iran, and not just renewing you know, uh, the old agreement, but the, what, what happened in the new sanctions agreement um, that was broader than just Iran. And I, and I, um, I think that there is some kind of upset. I think the good news is that the individuals in, in Iran that had been responsible for negotiating the deal have been reappointed to their positions and that, you know, the, the, the partners on the other side of the table will hold the line in terms of what uh, these sanctions, what the uh, what this agreement was um, supposed to be all about, and the kind of peace and security it was supposed to deliver uh, to the to the world at large. And so, I think um, I think there's I think we could expect some some consistent momentum there in the direction that we've seen, but it's it's going to be a continual challenge. And there has been uh, you know there has been uh, some pushback from Tehran uh, saying that you know we've now violated the United States has now violated the terms of the agreement and that they will take action. And so you know how many countries in the world can you have who are now saying to the United States, you've done the following, we are going to take action. And it's you know if it were one, it were two, but we're now seeing this as a as a common thread in terms of how uh, in countries around the world are responding to us and at some point there will be a straw that breaks the camel's back and that's the worry well let's turn to yet another country in Afghanistan now America's longest military engagement Trump has again complained to top brass that quote we aren't winning we are losing while in fact Trump himself is delaying even a trimmed back level of increased forces for which uh, his generals originally asked some analysts applaud that restraint uh, noting even larger troop surges in the past did not keep the Taliban from coming back what's your view on that yeah, my view on this is that this has been a very long war, as you say, our longest ever. Um, it has not produced the results uh, that were uh, the United States expected along the way, um, and that this is this is you know it's like good money after bad. Uh, how much more can you put in and still not get a result? I do think, however, that one of the reasons for uh, President Trump's restraint here has been that that he may be toying. At least reports indicate that he may be toying with the idea of privatizing much of uh, the work in Afghanistan, the military uh, work in Afghanistan, um, with um, you know military contractors and um and, and using kind of special forces um, to help do the kinds of things that the United States was doing in terms of support and training, et cetera. Um, and that that may in fact be the way that this administration chooses to go. Talk about some concrete actions Trump has taken. The so-called mother of all bombs in Afghanistan, increasing drone attacks, which was an Obama hallmark, a bigger defense budget overall, uh, but not, as uh, Trump tweeted uh, this week, major modernizing of U.S. nuclear weapons. What has he actually done? You know what he has. So, you know, this is a this is a thought exercise. You know, you could lay out a whole spectrum of what you can do that that is um, that shows a kind of aggression. Do you? On one hand, you have words uh, like he's used against Korea. Uh, on the other hand, at the very other end of the spectrum, you would have actual military intervention. So, one of the things that does, did happen, of course, is the launching of the what we call the mother of all bombs, the most powerful. Um, conventional weapon uh, the United States has in its arsenal, which had never been used before, I guess, created for the Iraq War. And, um, and, and you know, Trump claimed it was a great success. Um, not, I don't think it actually, you know, many reports are that didn't actually do anything of, of consequence. Um, again, I'm not sure that we 
know um, about that, but I think that that would be one example. In terms of drones, his use of drones is, um, by conservative estimates, at least four times um, what it was uh, by Obama, and we're particularly thinking about the country of Yemen that is, you know, war-torn and ravaged and um, hovering on the brink of uh, famine with a cholera um, outbreak. So. Um, this is this is the opposite of protecting the safety and security of um, of a country of of the world, um, and so these drone strikes, which were a concern to many uh, human rights activists and others um, it, during the Obama administration, of course, a much bigger concern now during the Trump administration. The problem is there's so much else to um, respond to that it's almost it doesn't it's not getting the kind of attention I think that it might otherwise have gotten. So, so, you know, the long and the short of it is that he's, he's taken some actions. I think they're mostly symbolic. Most of what he's done is to pose, to make statements, to test the waters. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see how the military that he surrounded himself with, how the generals that he surrounded himself with, and now a new one, General Kelly, um, as chief of staff, how and if they will have some kind of uh, restraint on him um, and, and where this is all headed. And remember that this is, this is, this, these military questions are coming at a time when we've never had a weaker diplomatic corps. The State Department is still largely um, decimated and positions have not been filled. Dozens of ambassadorships remain vacant still under this administration, many of whom have not even been nominated. So the the um, profession of diplomacy is not respected by, at least it does not appear to be respected by the um, actions of this administration. You have a Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, who at, at times is almost not part of the story when, when the true conflicts happen. Every now and then he'll you know, appear, but he's really still finding his footing and, and who knows if he actually will. It's not an easy role that he's stepped into. And so the question is, what's the plan? Is the plan to just become, turn decisions over to uh, a group of military officers? Is the plan to turn it over to a group of military officers who Trump um, insists agree with him? You know, what is the plan? What are the long-term goals? Um, is is the how much of this is about satisfying his base by saying no I'm willing to take military action I'm willing to go to the brink of nu nuclear war I'm willing to um, to thwart China and and countries in the Middle East and Russia how much of it is just bombast and how much of it is whether bombast or not completely dangerous and so um, you the, one of the takeaways here that doesn't get mentioned a lot because we talk so much about policy and what's happening and trying to figure out whose reports to to um, to 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 accept um, I think one of the things that's lost is that we are the United States is a country who for 15 16 17 years since 9-11 and some would argue before has been uh, taught to live in fear. And fear has been a part of how we think about what our president 
should do and who we are in the world and we're just constantly something bad's going to happen you know this kind of attack's going to happen from a terrorist now we're worried about potential nuclear confrontation all of a sudden the stakes have gotten extremely high and i think that some level uh, at some point there will come a breaking point where where some officials or individuals uh, in the public discourse will say wait a minute let's have a reality check here let's actually talk about how fearful we we should be how fearful we want to be and begin to reinstate those things that keep a civilized society safe and that's when I return to this notion of diplomacy a diplomatic core consensus decisions long-term strategies um, and um, but but right now we don't have any of those things at least not in a in a palpable visible way your article also notes that one of the tools of foreign policy, peacekeeping, uh, building alliances, foreign aid has been hollowed out uh, under the under the Trump administration. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So you know, one of the the important things that's been part of the United States mission abroad, and it's been it's been crippled for a, for a long time. This is not brand new. Is is the um, role of let's say USAID, which is an important organization that goes in and helps civil society building in uh, post-war situations, post-conflict situations, um, and sometimes just in a situation where a country has been destroyed for a variety of reasons, could be natural uh, causes. And they go in and they help build. And USIAD has been stronger or weaker over the past few uh, decades, um, depending on a lot of things about, you know, global uh, resources and um, Congress. Uh, but right now, USAID has been particularly good and again, I want to return to this point about privatization. An awful lot of what used to go on in, in the government is now being talked about as potentially the responsibility of the private sphere. So you'll see NGOs and other international organizations begin to take up this burden. Much of the burden that USAID has, which is in these post-conflict areas, it, or not, there is not going to be enough uh, private privatized, or there is not now, enough privatized uh, resources to help um, build those societies, to help take care of the children, to help put shelter and food um, over people. And so um, it's, it's a critical part of what American foreign policy over, always was, not just a, a military presence, not just a brashness, but also a compassionate concern for building society and taking care of people on the, on the basic level of human existence. And so that not being there also weakens uh, the image of the United States in the world and, and also the reality of security on the ground. And one of the things that a, a number of um, pundits are writing about these days is the um, image of the United States in the world, that people are uh, a number of individuals have expressed the notion that, um, you know, if we talk this way about North Korea, if we talk this way about individual countries in the Middle East, then yes, it's America first, but in a way it's alienating um, our allies as well as, um, you know, inciting our, our enemies to be more hostile against us. And I, I think it's an even more complicated story than that, which is, yes, our image in the world is dependent on all of, of these things, but there is a way in which 
there is a way in which there's a wait-and-see attitude, much as I think there is in the United States among the population and the citizenry, which is, well, wait and see. Um, let's, let's, let's just see where this is going. Let's not panic. Um, let's see what happens. But when it comes to the intangible ways in which a country can become important to the rest of the world by the amount of care it takes of others around the world, the amount of help it dispenses, the amount of institution building it gives. These are the kinds of things that can hold alliances in place when the politics are chaotic like we see now. And so the loss of USAID resources, um, coupled with what I talked about with the loss of the diplomatic corps, um, is really probably crippling to the United States and its image in the world in a way that it's hard to fathom. I guess you would also put in that category the impact on national security and foreign relations from Trump's immigration ban, even though it's still partially blocked by the Supreme Court. Yeah, we'll see what happens with that. It's partially blocked, and it'll come up uh, for a decision in the fall. But, um, you know, I, yes, I, I think that's a huge part of it, to come into the presidency and to say, look, you know, the first thing I'm going to do is to take this stand that is, you know, racist among other, you know, um, issue, uh, other uh, identifiers that you could associate with it, and bellicose and um, aggressive. But in a way, the stakes have changed so much since then that, while it's it's important to think about it and to acknowledge it and to care about what happens, it's almost like the the world has exploded in so many ways since then that that's almost like you know the good old days of having one issue you could focus your attention on. Even before Fire and Fury, many were concerned about Trump's unrestrained rhetoric on Twitter, uh, despite a week of former Marine General John Kelly as White House Chief of Staff and uh, ostensibly uh, Chief Disciplinarian. Does it really undermine U.S. credibility around the world, or is it increasingly irrelevant, as when the Pentagon ignored tweets about transgender personnel uh, until actual orders come down, they said, if, if they ever do? It's neither irrelevant nor um, transformative in the sense that um, it's, it's just extremely um, unfortunate. In this, what you want is the world to look to your country and to the person at the head of it and say, yes, that's the person who should be whatever the term you want to use is, the leader of the free world or the person who's, you know, at the head of the United States. And instead what they see is somebody who's willing to look buffoonish, who has, who has no respect for process or for enough respect for the team around him to vet what it is that he wants to tweet out, and a sort of trivialization of the American presidency that's unprecedented. And so it, it trivializes the United States. And that, that that may not have a major consequence that you can point to. It's part of the mix, and it's not a good part of the mix. A final overview question. In the months since you wrote this article, some analysts see Trump more interested in looking tough to please his base than in real military action that could cost many U.S. lives and others uh, a top concern of advisors like Steve Bannon. Could Trump indeed be marching as to war, but not intentionally to war itself? 
would that that would be, could be the case. Would that it be, be the case that you can antagonize um, countries around the world, that you can send out, uh, you, you know, your your warships, that you can send out your drones, that you can take these things that are uh, concessions, as you would say, to, to his base, and not have there be consequences. You can't make those distinctions. They don't exist. And so while the initial motive of some of these things may have been satisfying the base, the ultimate consequence doesn't care about the intent. Dr. Greenberg, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Karen J. Greenberg, Director of the Center on National Security at Fordham University Law School in New York. Her article in the new WPJ summer issue is Marching as to War, Trump's New Militarism. Also featured in the new WPJ summer issue, cover line Justice Denied, You'll find articles about how Egypt's lawmakers codify oppression, why Honduran farmers sued the World Bank for investing in murder, what imperils New Berlin, and much more. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Interim editor Caroline Preston, managing editor Laurel Jerombeck, podcast producer Anna Grace Carter. I'm David Alpern. 